Did you ever have an unpopular opinion? Did you ever feel kind of nervous knowing that you were going to have to share that opinion with the people who think it's unpopular in the first place? Yeah, that's kind of how I'm feeling right now. Listeners, I hope that we can still be friends when this episode is over. In all seriousness, I love when I can use the podcast as a platform to share different perspectives and ideas. It's great when my guests and I have different perspectives, and I think it's just as great when my guest and or I don't necessarily agree with a lot of my audience. And I think I can predict that might be what's about to happen on episode 97. Today, we are talking about Lewis Sacker's 1978 collection of stories, Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Each chapter in the book is a story about a different member of Mrs. Jewell's class. The final chapter focuses on the yard teacher, Lewis, who, you guessed it, represents the author himself. I won't get into all the details of my unpopular opinion quite yet, but I will let you know that this is a super interesting conversation and that I think you should stay tuned. You'll hear me and my guest talk about why we love the book's format and structure, the publishing history behind Sideways Stories, and the theories I found about how the author wrote this as a way of showing that he was in on the joke with the way schools are run and the way adults behave. We also chat about how the book really shows its age with respect to name-calling and bullying, and how it flies in the face of our rule-following natures. Oh, and you'll laugh at the versions of us who recorded this episode in late March and thought that maybe life would be back to normal post-quarantine by the time this episode dropped. You sweet, innocent things. Today's episode is in collaboration with The Bookly Club, and I'm thrilled to welcome one of The Bookly Club's founders as my guest. Katie Cragwell is a former marketing manager and designer turned stay-at-home mom. Her kids started preschool this year, so she is in the process of restarting her career as a freelance graphic designer, focusing on designing book covers. Katie currently lives in Chicago with her family and loves all things book-related. Back in 2014, she started The Bookly Club, an online book club open to all, with her three best friends, all of whom are named Catherine. Katie owns and operates the blog and bookstagram for the Bookly Club, and the Catherines chime in to chat and review when they can. The club reads 10 books per year, each in keeping with the season they read them in, which is why Sideways Stories from Wayside School is perfect for this time of year, when they always read a YA or middle grade title to celebrate the end of school. Katie will tell you more about how this collaboration came about once we get into our conversation, but in the meantime, I'd like to say a big thanks to her for guesting. Follow along with all of the awesome things happening with The Bookly Club on Instagram and Twitter at The Bookly Club, or visit thebooklyclub.com. While you're following new bookish social media, please don't forget to join the SSR party. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. Once you're at the SSR social media party, don't forget to invite your friends. You can easily do this by tagging us in your posts. Start by taking a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and posting it to your Instagram story. Let me know what you're doing while you listen. You can help spread the word about the podcast above and beyond social media by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes. I say this all the time because it's helpful all the time. Every rating or review helps the show rank higher in Apple's all-important algorithms so more people can find their way to SSR. After all, the more the merrier. More is also merrier when it comes to your SSR swag collection. Did you know we have super cute bookmarks, stickers, tote bags, and t-shirts? You can shop them all at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. Every purchase supports the show. One more great way to support the show is to become a Patreon sponsor. Patrons contribute a few dollars every month, as little as just one dollar, to the production of SSR, and they get special rewards in return. This is an independent podcast, which means I manage 100% of it on my own without support or funding from a larger organization. As the Patreon community grows, it allows me to invest more time and money into making the podcast the very best it can be. Plus, as a sponsor, you'll get newsletters and bonus episodes and exclusive voice notes. 
Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. A big thanks goes out to all of the Patreon sponsors tuning in now. I couldn't do it without you. In these strange times, independent bookstores couldn't do their thing without our support either. You can show them a little extra love by buying your audiobooks through Libro.fm. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to take advantage of that deal and love on the indie bookseller community while you're at it. I just finished Glennon Doyle's Untamed on Libro.fm, and I'm completely heartbroken that the experience is over. Guess it's time to pick another great book to listen to. Suggestions are always welcome. Okay, listeners, I guess it's time to get a little sideways. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Katie. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks so much for having me. So I feel like we should start with a little bit of context for listeners because This episode is being recorded about two months before all of you are listening to it. We are recording on March 31st. When you are listening (laughs) to it, it's late May, and I'm hoping that the world has transformed (laughs) in all kinds of positive ways. Katie and I are conveniently social distancing anyway because I do all of my recordings via Skype. But if we reference things like quarantine or kids being out of school or any of those other things, that's why we're living in a very unique moment right now in late March Mm -hmm. 2020. So I just wanted to set that up since we really are well ahead of schedule on this one. But I'm excited to have a fun conversation with you about a super wacky book called Sideways Stories from Wayside School. I've been getting tons of dms from listeners who saw that i'm reading this book and can't wait to hear us talk about it and katie i'm going to kick it over to you because we're actually doing this episode as a collaboration with you and the bookly club and i would love if you could share a little bit about like the genesis for this collaboration why we're reading this now and why you picked this book yes well i am so excited to chat about this as well um this all kind of started i mean i've listened to your podcasts for a year or so now um the bookly club we have have four founding members, one of whom, um, Catherine, who is of Read With Cat, was on your podcast a little while ago, which is kind of what got me started listening. And at the Bookly Club, what we like to do is we read kind of on theme, I guess is what you would say. So depending on the month, we read a book that's fitting for that time of year. So February, it'll be a love story. Um, October, a scary story. July, we like to read something nonfiction. 
that has to do with Americana in some way. And for May and, uh, May and June, which we combine, we read something that is either young adult or middle grade, something to celebrate school being out for summer and celebrating the school days and such. So knowing that you love to dig into these um, young adult middle grade stories and do such a good job um, with the nostalgia and kind of looking back and and talking about all these, um, I reached out thinking this would be a great way for us to collaborate for our Bookley's May and June uh, book and chat all about it with you and do something together, which is so fun. Yeah, I was thrilled when you reached out. I loved having Catherine on the show. It's been almost a year now, which is crazy. We read Walk crazy. Two Moons. Yes. I can't believe it's been that long. Um, but I had so much fun having her on the show, and I've been following you in the Bookley Club for a long time. So it's a natural fit. And we are celebrating the end of school, whatever that looks like where you are (laughs) with this book. Um, Again, I can't anticipate how the rest of the school year is going to play out for you parents who are listening, but it is late May, which is traditionally end of school. So it seems like the right time to do this. Um, Did you read Sideways Stories when you were a kid? I did. So I read it. I'm a very visual person. So my memory is not necessarily like in reading this, I'm kind of realizing this about myself, like reading words off the page don't necessarily strike my memory. But as soon as I saw the cover, when I was looking back into, you know, okay, what did we read like back in the 90s and and late 80s and such? I saw this cover and immediately was like, yes, I remember reading that. Um, So I know I did. (laughs) But I don't, I can't say that rereading it brought back any specific memories. I just kind of the cover definitely evoked a feeling for me. Yeah, I don't think I read this one. So this book came out in 1978. It was actually the first of Lewis Sacker's books, which is pretty cool. We've done a few of his novels on the podcast. We talked about Holes last January. Mm -hmm. And then I believe this past December, we talked about There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom. But this is the first book that he ever published, which is pretty cool. There were two sequels um, or sort of companions that came out in the 20 or so years after. Um, There was one called Wayside School is Falling Down, and then the title of the third one is escaping me right now, but it came out in 1995. And then, sort of more reasons that it's so appropriate for us to be talking about this book right now, there was another book that came out in March of this year, so just a couple of weeks ago, as you and I are talking, he had a fourth installment to the Wayside School series, um, which is pretty cool. I have some quotes that we can talk, that we can get to later, where he's talking about like why he decided to go back to this world and how it kind of took him a long time to be ready. I never read this first one though. So I never read Sideways Stories from Wayside School. I'm pretty sure I read Wayside School is Falling Down. And I think I just like picked it up randomly at the library when I was in elementary school. Um, But I wasn't like committed to the series or bought into the series in any real way. And I'm excited to talk about it, but I'm also a little bit nervous because I think I might have an unpopular opinion. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been a while since I had an unpopular opinion. And I'm kind of pumped because for the last couple of episodes, I feel like I've been like, yeah, it's great. I agree. Totally. Same. Um, And I, I don't necessarily feel that way about this book um and I do think that part of it is that I don't have like a nostalgia factor Mm -hmm. associated with it like as I was reading this and having some thoughts um I sort of kept making notes to myself where I was like right but if I had read this when I was little I might have warm and fuzzy feelings about it instead of potentially critical feelings Right. Reading it from a different perspective of like, like I was, I sat down and read the first few chapters with my daughters who are four and five. And 
you know, you can't help but then think of it from an analytical point of view where, oh, well, what language are they using and how are they? So I totally had the same feelings in reading through it, especially because I didn't have a recollection of reading it as a kid. Like I knew I did, but I couldn't remember sitting and absorbing those stories or have recall of what the stories were about that I also felt myself very much reading it for the first time as a 35-year-old, which to your point, left a l- many different thoughts than it probably would have had I had all those warm and fuzzies from childhood. Yeah, so there's our disclaimer, listeners, because mm-hmm. like I said, you know, I've been getting a lot of messages from people who absolutely loved this book, um, and I just, I love you all still. I hope you love me <laughs> still. I think I would have felt differently about this book if I read it when I was younger. Did your kids enjoy it? They did. It was interesting. I I picked it up to read it, and they could tell, like, just by the looks of it, this is a kid's book. This is not, you know, what's something mom's normally reading. Like, can we see the stories? You know, just they saw it had pictures, so they wanted to read it. So I read the first two chapters, and they definitely enjoyed it. My five-year-old, who has, like, the slightly longer attention span, was into it, and every time she'd see me pick it back up, she's like, oh, Mom, don't read without us. Like, I want to hear what happens. And I was like, oh, well, it doesn't, I felt like, I'm like, I don't know how to explain this isn't like really a sequential story. Yeah. Like these are all little stories. You don't have to hear one chapter to hear what happens. But they were definitely entertained by it, which I thought was interesting. Because I'm not sure like what the target, what would you say the target age is for this? I mean, I think the target age is like a classroom of maybe elementary schoolers who have a teacher that reads them reads to them for a few minutes at the end of every day. I mean, that was sort of what I felt about this where I was like, okay, this would be so fun if you were in like kindergarten first, second grade. I'm sort of removed mm-hmm. from like what kids at different ages at this point in time are like actively interested in. So I, I could be wrong there. But I was like if you were, you know, um part of that age group and your teacher had five or 10 minutes at the end of every school day and opened this book and just read she one of these stories that would be so fun Mm -hmm. I can see there being a ton of laughter like a lot of silliness Lewis Sacker like really does understand kids I think and like what makes Mm -hmm. them tick and what makes them laugh and what they relate to and you really see that in each story but I don't know that maybe a third or fourth or fifth grader who was an independent reader would necessarily enjoy digging into these. I don't know. I mean, that wasn't the kind of reader that I was as a kid. I really liked reading a full novel start to finish. That just was what I enjoyed. I loved like a babysitter's club or a saddle club right. or, you know, any of the other books that I was assigned in school. I, I just don't think I ever enjoyed this. And to be fair, I don't like to read short stories now as an adult. So this has just never been like my format, but I can see how, maybe as a read aloud, this book could work really well in younger elementary school classrooms. Definitely. I mean, I had those those thoughts too in reading this that it is really fun. I mean, so you have the 30 different chapters that go through pretty much every kid in the classroom of the 30-story building. There's a lots, lots of tie-ins there, which I thought was really fun. They're each, what, like two to four pages long, ripe with comedy, like that young kid comedy of just like silliness. And it really, it was fun when I sat down to read it with my girls. It was that perfect length of like a solitary story with a beginning, middle and end in one small chapter that had just the right type of humor for them. So that's a really, I hadn't thought of that, of like having it as a read aloud in the classroom, I think is probably an excellent setup for this because 
I'm the same way. I am not someone who, I like to be immersed in a story. I'm not someone who sits and picks up short stories very often. I mean, that being said, we do do that for the Bookly Club. Like for April, we're reading Ali Wong's Dear Girls, which, you know, each chapter is going to be a little story or anecdote or something like that. Or we've read uh, BJ Novak's, uh, what was the name of his book? Which is another, I mean, kind of like... Is it called One More Thing? Yes, it is. Which I enjoy those, but they're not something I would gravitate towards or pick up unless it's, I guess, assigned reading, for lack of a better word. So I felt that way, too, in reading this, although it did make it go really fast and easy. Yeah, it was a quick read. I mean, I've come around more recently to essays. I've read a lot of essay collections, so I guess you could argue that those are like short stories, sort of. What I liked about Mm -hmm. this as a short story collection was that you got glimpses of the same characters across different stories. So that was fun. Like each chapter or each story is dedicated to a different student in the class, which I thought was really fun. And I liked the fact that you would sort of get like a cameo of one student in chapter three or four, and then that student would sort of be the star of the show in chapter nine, 10, 11, 12, and so on. Like I thought that was really cool. And I liked that the first chapter, the first two chapters were about the teachers. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought having not read this particular collection when I was a kid, I thought that maybe each story was going to be about a different one of the classrooms in the school. Oh, yeah. Which Mm -hmm. I thought could have been fun too. But one thing I'll say that I think is really great and positive for kids is that this collection sort of sets up a situation where every student gets to like be the hero. Yeah. You know, no matter how that looks, sometimes I think it's arguable (laughs) whether a student looks more like a hero or a villain in the story. Um, But every student gets to like shine in one part of the book. And I think that that is probably really positive for kids to see like, no matter what kind of student you are, no matter what kinds of friends you have, no matter what you excel at or don't excel at in the classroom, you get to have your own chapter in this sort of like metaphorical sense. I liked that a lot (laughs) in terms of the format. Yeah, me too. I thought, I think that was actually a highlight for me. Probably one of my favorite things about the book in reading it was for better or worse, all the stories that were being told, like you said, hero or villain, they were all kind of misfits in their own way. And each of them getting their own chapter, I do. And it kind of circled back for me at the end when Lewis, the playground teacher, aka author's point of view, um, you know, talks about how we see the other as silly and strange. And he speaks directly to the reader saying, you might think these children are silly and strange. Well, they would think you were silly and strange. And of course, as promised, as you read each student's different chapter and each funny story, some insidious, some, some charming, there is this realization that each student in the classroom is weird and not quote unquote normal in their own right, which was my favorite takeaway from it was that you really got to see we're all different. We're all a little bit weird. We all have our own quirks. Um, and that's okay. We're still all part of the same story. So that was definitely my favorite part, a highlight for me when I was reading this. Let's talk a little bit more about Lewis, the yard teacher, <laughs> yes. <laughs> because that was another thing format wise that I really enjoyed about the book. So I think it's really interesting, even if you step back and consider the fact that Lewis Sacker as like a brand new, fresh out of college author 
was like, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to make myself a character. Like, that's kind of cool. It's a bold move. I did read some history kind of about like how this book was written and came out. He actually wrote um, sort of the first iteration of it when he was in high school. He wrote it for Mm. an English class and um, there was a character named Mrs. Gorf in it. And people who have read this book and remember it, you'll remember that Mrs. Gorf is the original teacher in the book before she uh, is turned into an apple and eaten by (laughs) one of her students or turns herself into an apple. Um, And so Mrs. Gorf made her way from Lewis Sacker's original kid story all the way to this book. Um, And he was sort of dabbling in writing kids' books throughout college. He decided to go to law school, and on his first week of classes, he got word that there was going to be a publishing deal for Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Interesting. Yeah. So I think it's like, again, bold move in your early 20s as like a brand new author to be like, (laughs) you know who needs to be a character in this book? Me. Um, (laughs) But he did, and it worked. And I found that there were a lot of stories where Lewis, the yard teacher, was kind of the voice of reason. I would say more often than not, Mm -hmm. I felt like he was coming at the story and coming at what was happening in Wayside School from the audience's perspective. Like, he tended to see things the way I saw them. Um, Mm -hmm. And then at the end, there's a whole chapter dedicated to him, and he comes in to tell the students a story because it's snowing in June. Again, like, there's all these zany things happening. He tells them these stories about kids that, you know, in our perspective as readers seem very quote unquote normal. Um, Mm -hmm. And as you said, the students at Wayside School are like, no, that seems really weird. Um, But I really liked there's this character who shows up throughout the book and, you know, makes these sort of offhand comments here and there, recognizing that the reader might be questioning what's going on in the story. I think it would maybe make kid readers feel a little bit more comfortable because they're like, oh, there's a grown up here who sees things and like knows that maybe I would be confused (laughs) about what's going on. And like, this makes it feel more okay. I really liked Lewis as a character. Yeah, I did too. It felt like he was the tie-in, the bridge between that reality and ours. And to your point too, always kind of had that voice of reason, like a parental guidance, like someone at the end of most stories, he appears in some way, either as the resolution to be like, but I forget which was the one that one of the students thinks they've lost or they've forgotten their lunch and there's a whole to do about that. And he's the one who walks up like, oh, here, I found this. (laughs) You know, he kind of brings uh, normalcy back into the environment or what we expect to be more normalcy. And he's who the students kind of go to for when they really need something. And he's also kind of the one who circles back the morality in each tale if you can if you can if you see it that way as him as being a moral to each story um sometimes sarcastically sometimes funnily sometimes more black and white uh but I really liked him as a character too I think that kind of without him and without I guess you could say like breaking that fourth wall in a way it doesn't have that that unique quality that I think this book I think it, it kind of plays just like, oh, a bunch of silly stories without him inserting himself was a really unique part of the read for sure. And I liked that a lot. I love the way you said that. I think you captured exactly what I was feeling about it because it could just be like sort of this random collection of stories mm-hmm. about kids in a school. And there's something very special about the way Lewis Sacker brings all of it together with this yard teacher who happens to be an extension of himself. I really like that. So I want to get into conversations about some of the specific stories. But before we do that, I wanted to share that more than any book that I've read for the podcast in a long time, there's tons of writing 
online about this series. There are so many people who have written think pieces and essays about their experiences reading these stories when they were kids. Gia Tolentino, author of one of my favorite books of last year, Trick Mirror, wrote a whole story about how um, Lewis Sacker and Sideways Stories really was her introduction to craft and how she comes back to the Sideways Stories a few times a year, not just for nostalgia, but because she really feels like Lewis Sacker's style has informed the way she writes, which I thought was fascinating. And I'll link to that and everything else that I found in the show notes. But I did want to share a couple of excerpts from these pieces and sort of get your take on them because as interesting as like the book itself is, I think like stepping back and looking at the broader conversation around it when it's available Mm -hmm. is really cool. So this piece I found in the Atlantic and it's called the absurd joy of sideways stories from wayside school. It was written, I believe by the executive editor of the Atlantic. Um, and one thing she mentioned was like the adventures in other kids stories, sideways stories had its own sinister and bizarre undercurrents, but there was something different about Sacker's tales while writers like Madeline Lengel, L Frank Baum, CS Lewis, and Roald Dahl often transported their protagonists to curious and dizzying new worlds. Sacker invented a universe that was outlandish only to the reader to the characters in the book who are simply going to school each day sideways stories is ordinary bordering on mundane (laughs) that's very true I mean all of them are are treating and as a reader you're being you're still being transported to this weird unusual world right you're still seeing it as as silly and odd and unusual but all of those children are like no that's just what happens like the weird dead rat theme which why like their dead rats are apparently always trying to get into their classroom. I mean, uh, why not? That's normal. <laughs> yeah. That always happens apparently in this other world, which is really interesting. And I guess as a young reader, you're probably being told by adults so often that, Oh, that's just what happens in the world or, Oh, that's normal. Or you'll learn when you grow up that these things happen. So I'm sure there's, that's a really interesting take that I hadn't thought of that, as Sacker as the author kind of inlays that into his writing where young readers are learning to operate in a world where they're always being told, no, this is normal, and kind of seeing the silliness in that and the childlike observation of that, I guess, is a really interesting point I hadn't thought of. Yeah. Another excerpt from that same piece, the underlying message in sideways stories from Wayside School is that adults are strange and inscrutable and that children are smarter than their teachers. Ideas that feel like divine truths when you're in third grade. When I reread the book this week, I remember for a moment what that felt like. The world is still wide open to kids, Sacker told The Guardian last year. As I get older, it's becoming harder to find the inspiration to write for kids. I have to dig deep inside me and remember how I felt when I was a kid. What it feels like to be a kid is to be at the mercy of authority figures like teachers and parents whose reasoning and behavior is often puzzling and frustrating. That disconnect, the chasm between kids and grown-ups, can seem profound when you are small. Finding ways to revel in the distance from youth to adulthood to celebrate the weirdness and wonder of being young is a foundational part of kid culture and a theme that's at the heart of Sideways Stories, which I think really speaks to what Mm -hmm. you just said. I think it's really interesting. As I've read so many books for kids now for the podcast at this point, I really am, am learning to pay closer attention to the extent to which different authors are capable of like really capturing that feeling of being a kid. I mean, it's not just about writing a story that's going to capture kids' attention. It's about capturing what that experience feels like. Right. And I think especially for younger audiences, that's 
extremely important. And Sacker's really good at it. And I saw it in holes. I saw it in there's a boy in the girl's bathroom. Like he just really has a firm grasp on how kids like want to be spoken to. And this right. book does a great job of, of sort of like winking at them and saying like, we get it. You know, adults are kind of crazy. <laughs> they don't really understand us, but you just kind of have to play along and follow their rules so that you don't get in trouble. But like, let's be honest, those rules are dumb. Like I kind of feel as though that's yeah. what Sacker is trying to say to kid readers through this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he explicitly puts it in one of the, the lines, I think it's of Miss or Mrs. Jules, I forget which it is, where she's like, goes to one of her students, let me tell you a secret. Students are actually always smarter than the teacher. Like coming out of the teacher's mouth and like saying that to one of her students, like he's explicitly trying to represent that in his stories, which is which is very funny and very un- unusual. I think for most, you know, most childhood stories, you're trying to bring the children up into a more adult-like viewpoint as to this is why you should listen to those grown-ups. And in this story, it's like, no, no, we're in on it. Like, you're definitely smarter. <laughs> right, like play along. We know, exactly. we know you're smarter, just play along. <laughs> um, as I said, I'm going to link to Gia Tolentino's piece because it's really great, like everything she writes. But I did want to share one line from her essay in particular. She says, Sacker is kind to his characters, but in a way that involves letting them be extremely rude to one another. I had never read anything that had both a surfeit of heart and an absence of sentiment, mm-hmm. especially as a mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit because even as I don't have kids, but I would say that something that made me bristle as I was going through this book is the liberal use of words like stupid and yep. fat and bad. Mm-hmm. And I see what Gia, my friend Gia Tolentino, who I wish I was friends with, <laughs> I see what she's saying to an extent in that there's like a kindness in letting kids sort of be who they are and letting kid readers like take in the full picture of what it's actually like to weather elementary school, the highs and the lows. When I read her piece, I was like, okay, I kind of get it, but I still can't quite reconcile that with how upset I was when I saw how rude these kids were to each other. I had the exact same feeling that like I got into certain chapters. I was like, well, I wouldn't read that one to my girls. Like, for example, like I have a rule with them, you know, trying to, we never know what the right answer is, but finding ways to teach our children to speak kindly about others, to not use certain words. Like I've never used the word fat in front of them. I tell them explicitly, we don't talk about other people's bodies. I just don't want them to get in the habit of describing or valuing people based on how they look or, you know, and stuff comes out of kids' mouths all the time that you don't, <laughs> that you don't want to hear, or you can't predict or, you know, is there a baby in your tummy? No, there's not a baby in my tummy. Um, Ask the question yes. a different way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But like, I found myself cringing at the same things where there was a lot of emphasis put on, well, she was the pretty girl and all the boys teased her, uh, or he was ugly and smelly, or he had really odd hands because they were too big. To be fair, Sacker does loop that back around to a point where he's inevitably mocking the value that was originally placed on those traits. 
in a way where it's like, well, that didn't actually matter that her hands were too, his hands were too big or his feet were, her feet were too small or, or whatever it is. And to your point, that is how middle school can be, right? Like everyone's picking everyone apart for every reason they can find, uh, that seems to have value. But I, I would like to hope that, and my girls only just started preschool this year, so we're, we're not even in deep, but I would like to hope that we're in a different time now than obviously than when this book was first written, but we're also teaching our children a different set of values or trying to put, uh, impress upon them a different set of values about name calling, about bullying, about body image, about all those, that kind of meanness that can exist and will exist no matter what we try to do in some regard. But I definitely think it showed its age in that way. Or maybe that's just hopeful thinking that now things are a little bit different or people are more likely to say, no, that's not okay. That's not how we talk about people or that's not how we talk to people. Like, let's promote more kindness. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe it's still all the same middle school stuff and and this is just him being really in tune with all that. But I like to think we've done a better job. <laughs> that this kind of language and the the name calling and the observations on people's bodies and stuff is no longer as relevant. I like to think the same thing. Um, and while I think it's entirely possible that kids are still kind of like behaving in these kinds of ways to a certain extent, in the classroom, on the playground, because they're working out like how to be humans and how to communicate with each right. other. I think that there's maybe less of a tolerance among adults to promote that or to brush it off as like, that's just what kids do. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the late 70s and the 80s and the 90s, when these books were being written, that maybe wasn't the case. You know, I think there maybe was sort of like blanket approval to like lean into that and mm-hmm. just sort of mirror it in a way that doesn't necessarily promote it, but doesn't do anything to stop it. Right. Um, and I think that what Lewis Sacker was doing here is just like telling the truth about what he knew was going on in classrooms. He actually worked as a teacher's aide, um, I believe either in college or like shortly after college. So he like probably saw all of this stuff going on. He had been through school himself And as much as I think that the dialogue about some of this stuff is changing now that we're in Mm -hmm. 2020, I don't know how much it's actually changed like on the ground, Um, but I don't think that authors are playing into it as much as they were. I mean, I think this was like the style that people were used to reading in the 80s and 90s. Like it was Mm -hmm. silly. It was zany. It was wacky. Like we recognized parts of our own experience in it and that was what helped it resonate But I think it's sort of shocking to come back to it now in this time when we are trying to like shift in the way that we talk to kids about body image and name calling Mm -hmm. and just generally sort of updating the discourse that young people use. It's weird to read this book now and be like, oh, right, this was entirely socially acceptable. Right. And that's that's the thing, like not to take anything away from the author, because I think he's directly observing exactly what what was happening. And in, I mean, think about just movies and TV in those eras too, how we put so much emphasis on the hierarchies in school and who's what. And it's, 
I think a direct it's, it does a great job of being a direct observation of what kid culture was like back then and all of us experience that same kind of atmosphere and you know to your point like I'm not on the ground I'm not in the classroom I don't have kids yet that are quite you know everyone still loves everyone else like everyone's friends with everyone still in, in preschool so we're not there yet but hopefully I mean at least in the language of the books and media that things are coming out nowadays, it is you. It, this book did kind of put in perspective, like, oh, at least what we're putting out there is definitely much different than what this is, for sure. Yeah, I think if nothing else, the use of the words stupid and fat uh, mm-hmm. are maybe where the line should be drawn. And I'm curious about the newest installment in the series that came out this past March. I'm curious if the tone and the language are similar. I read an interview with him in Publishers Weekly where he was talking about, again, the process of updating the series and coming back to this world so many years later. And the journalist who wrote the piece asked him if readers would notice a lot of changes. And when I saw that, my ears perked up because I was anxious to see if he would address the language. And he didn't address the language specifically. He sort of spoke to the fact that in his experience, kids stay the same a lot more than they change over time. And he still kind of wants to like speak to them in this very familiar way that has made him beloved for all these decades, which I can appreciate. He sort of jokes about the fact that the main change that readers will see is in the technology, because when he published the first book in the series in 1978, it was like a whole different world of technology. And so I guess in this 2020 installment, there's going to be newer devices and stuff. But he doesn't talk about the language specifically. So I'm curious if that's changed at all in the new book. Yeah, I would be interesting to compare the two because it's it's like, you know, if you don't want to be, I guess I kept thinking too about the age group, right? Because like I was thinking about it very much in terms of, ooh, what would I feel reading these words aloud to my daughters, which at ages four and five, that that thought process is going to be much different than if I'm reading it aloud or reading it with a second grader. Um, who might have more of a independent grasp of, oh, I know this is not appropriate and why it's not appropriate. And I get the joke at the end of this, that we're actually making fun of the people who put that value on someone, you know, versus a younger kid who's just going to hear the word, you know, stinky, ugly, fat, and think like, oh, that's not right. That person must be a bad guy in the book. So I think there's also this niche of what age is reading this and can they grasp the nuance of because he's not trying to say obviously it's good to be using these words but there's a lot of nuance to get to the why it's not good and where the real value is kind of thing yeah I mean there's no moral in this book and that's something Mm -hmm. that we talk about on the podcast quite a bit where it's like there are a lot of kids books a lot of middle grade books even some YA books that are sort of presented to kids with a lesson that's very clearly intended for them to take away from it. And um, I think there's always a debate to be had about how important it is that like every piece of kid pop culture have a moral. Should it always Mm -hmm. be that way? Is it okay for things to just be fun and silly? Is it okay for Mm -hmm. things to exist purely to entertain and make kids happy? That's obviously what Lewis Sacker is trying to do with these stories. Like he's not trying to make a moral judgment in any clear way about how these kids are right. behaving. Um, so it's it's obviously important to say that. I mean, I don't believe at all that Lewis Sacker is like promoting this kind of behavior. Like you said, I think there's, if anything, a sense that there's sort of like this joke about like, don't these kids look crazy? Like, doesn't this seem right. like they should be a little nicer to each other? But I do think that this book is sort of like ripe to be thrown into that debate about like, 
how important is it that all kid pop Mm -hmm. culture have a moral? Like, is it okay for it to just be fun? I would argue that it is if you're, I mean, freedom of speech, I guess it is no matter what. But in terms of what I would introduce to my own children, want to encourage them to absorb, I would think it is if you're reading it at an age where you can still under, you still have enough of a base to understand your own moral compass while you're reading it. You still can like grasp, oh, I wouldn't do that. I would do that. As opposed to like introducing subject matter too early where it's like, you can't see, can't see up from down. But I like what you're saying too, about the whole world of this book is supposed to be silly and weird that we're also supposed to glean from it that their attitudes are a bit silly and weird and what they think as good and bad is silly and weird. And you'd want a kid to be able to to grasp that from this story too, not just the mean names and all that. I think if the adults felt more grounded or more familiar to us in our quote-unquote real world and they weren't addressing the behavior, then maybe it would be different because it would be mm-hmm. like you're turning a blind eye to name-calling and bullying and all of this stuff, but right. we're not dealing with those kinds of adults. We're dealing with adults who think that this kind of stuff is totally okay. So I don't know. That's always an interesting conversation. Before we get into some of the specific stories for a few minutes, I wanted to share one more sort of big picture thought that I think like really plays into maybe my mixed feelings about the book. This one comes from an essay in Bustle, which again, I'll link in the show notes. The writer says, another thing you recognize looking back as a grown-up is Sacker's subtle, at times, criticism of the way schools are run. (laughs) Okay, so here's my thing. (laughs) I was talking about this book to my husband a few nights ago as I was finishing it, and I was asking him if he had read it, if he remembered it, and he couldn't remember, and he was like, why? Did you not like it? And I was like, I think that, okay, here. My feelings about it have softened since this conversation. But at that time, I was like, I think I really don't like this book. And he asked me why. And and I said that I felt like, okay, I feel like I keep backing up, but I'm I'm trying to say this in a way that isn't going to put people off. I was the kind of kid who adored being in school. I loved to learn. I loved being in the classroom. I loved being with my teachers. I know not every kid is like that. I know not every kid has the opportunity to be in schools that make them want to be like that. I had a really Mm -hmm. great school experience, um, and it just made me somebody who loved being a student. I did not like to let teachers down. (laughs) I still don't like to (laughs) let people down as a 29-year-old woman. Um, I did not like to be put in positions where I might be in trouble, like any mention of discipline or sort of being like part of the rigid systems of like check marks and being sent home early and detentions, like any of that totally freaked me out. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this was a book that kind of shows kids that they're going to be set up to fail Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways in school. Listeners, if you don't remember this, you know, there's a huge emphasis in this book on this sort of three strike system that Mrs. Jules has where basically if throughout the course of the day you misbehave one time, she writes your name on the chalkboard under the word discipline. If you misbehave a second time, she puts a check mark next to your name. And if you misbehave a third time before lunchtime, she circles your name. And that means you have to get on the early bus home with the kindergartners and leave school at noon. First of all, to a lot of kids, I don't think that's a punishment. I can see how a lot (laughs) of kids would like want to leave early at noon. But I felt like these kids were getting put on the board and checkmarked and circled for like everything. Yes. 
And sometimes it was because they were actually doing the right thing. And again, I right. know that this all sort of plays into the absurdity of the world and like the teachers don't really know what they're doing and they don't have a grasp on what should really be punished and what should be celebrated in the classroom. But I was trying to take myself back to what it would have been like to hear these stories as a kid. And I think it kind of would have made me stressed out about school. Mm-hmm. I think it would have made me worried about, like, am I going to get in trouble for, like, trying to stand up for someone in my classroom? Am I going to get in trouble for trying to, like, ask a classmate politely to stop talking while I'm trying to do a test? Is my teacher going to totally misunderstand me and, like, think that I'm a problem when I'm just trying to learn? Um, am I going to be called names by other students? Um, am I going to be given a note to deliver to another teacher that doesn't exist on a floor <laughs> right. of a building that isn't even real? Um, and I was trying to explain all of this to my husband and he was like, that's literally your worst nightmare. Like <laughs> it's your worst nightmare. I can picture you as like a first or second grader going into school and like being set up to fail or being given impossible assignments by your teacher. Um, yeah. he's like, that's just your worst nightmare. And so again, like maybe this is another disclaimer where, I'm probably projecting a little bit of like my own <laughs> fears about it. Matt even said, he was like, you probably still have nightmares about that kind of stuff. Like right. <laughs> again, you're 29 years old and I wouldn't be surprised if you still have nightmares about being in elementary or middle school and like <laughs> b- being given an impossible <laughs> task by a teacher that you can't fulfill. So maybe I'm projecting, but I really struggled with that element. And I do think that there's an argument to be made as this bustle writer is, is suggesting that like, these are just like winks that Lewis Sacker is making to the mm-hmm. fact that like schools are really run in a crazy way, aren't they? But kids don't get those winks. I mean, an adult might, right. but a kid might think, especially a kid who's younger and is being read these stories before they've been exposed to a school environment. Like, I would just hate for a kid to think that this might be what That's their what experience is. is like. Yeah. 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 I I felt the same way. I can't. I, like the further I got into the stories, the more I was like. Each of these stories is like one of those you show up at school naked dreams or you show up and you haven't there's a test you haven't studied for. Like totally. each of these stories is exactly one of those nightmares where you get to school and something's totally wrong that you couldn't predict that you don't know what's going on and oh my god now you're in trouble. Like they each felt like that and had this slightly like I don't know, like kind of creepy, a little bit insidious, like stomach turning, nervous energy to it that I felt the same way. Like I was and still am like a total rule follower, tried to be a great student. I had a different experience in terms of I moved basically every two years growing up. So I was always the new kid in a different school. So there was some of it that spoke to me in terms of feeling out the oddities of a new school or a new teacher or a new classroom and everyone's different personalities and what to expect. And each school had different a different set of rules and a different set of expectations. And like, you know, when could you use the bathroom and what did you need a pass or no pass? So I did appreciate the slight element of there's always something new to figure out, like whether it's a new year, a new teacher, a new student, or a new school, or a new city, or a new country, whatever it might have been for me. But it still had, I guess the point is, the stories were darker than I would have predicted. 
and you know, as a kid, there's a lot that still goes over your head, right? So maybe some of the things that we're reading into it, like you said, are projections and a kid would just understand like, well, that's weird and silly. Right. Uh, but as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, that would make me so nervous. Or that's a nightmare situation or dead rats under 10 layers of raincoats. Like what? is this? Like, so it all felt like you were reading some, like he woke up, had had a dream or a nightmare about school and wrote it down as a story. Right. And was like, good thing this didn't actually happen to anybody. <laughs> yes. But I did get that feeling that I kind of felt like he was definitely trying to make a statement about schools being too rigid, too many rules that contradicted one another, too many expectations, different expectations for kids. I felt like that was kind of, that to me felt like an, an overarching statement that he was making, which again, maybe that's, that's just my own impression. But as a kid who likes rules and likes to follow the rules, I always liked having, you know, a teacher you trust with a system you trust and something new to learn every day. So it would be interesting to, to know more about different kids at different ages who think differently about school, what their perception of that is. Because I definitely felt similarly to how you feel. Yeah. And when I was reading it, I wasn't thinking about it as a statement. Like I wasn't thinking about it mm -hmm. as Lewis Sacker's like maybe quasi-political statement about the way that our school systems <laughs> school are broken. <laughs> and reading that piece in Bustle, I sort of breathed a sigh of relief because I was like, I hope that's what it was. Like, right. I, in my mind, and I, I think Louis Sacker is probably an awesome person and, and I'd love to meet him. In my mind and in the way I imagine him, like, that maybe is what he was trying to do. But as I was reading it, I was like, this just feels stressful. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They did, each story had, like, a stressful element to it for sure. Yeah. So there were a few stories that I really liked, and I'd love to chat about some of those before we start to close out our conversation. Was there one in particular that you really loved or that sticks out for you in a positive way? That's a great question. Um, I, I basically, I did kind of like, I didn't write, I wrote down stories I didn't like. <laughs> I don't think there was, I liked the last story. I did like the endings to most of his stories, how they all kind of had a subtle wink like you said, to the absurdities, or there was an odd punchline, or just how each kid was weird in each story <laughs> and in their own way. But overall, for me, what stood out were the, ooh, I didn't like that one <laughs> kind of thing. Because you have them written down, do you want to share yeah. maybe your least favorite? And then I'll close this out on a positive note with the two that I liked. There you go. I think my least favorite, I mean, I wasn't a fan of the Maybe it's because it was the new kid who happened to be a dead rat under all the raincoats. <laughs> it was weird. Which was a weird story. And as someone who was always the new kid, I was like, well, hey, new isn't <laughs> like a dead rat. New can be good. But also there was something, which, whose story was it? The one with, I think it was Paul, number 10, who kept pulling Leslie's pigtails. There was something very irksome about that. I agree about, well, her pigtails are just hanging in my face and they're so long and I just have to pull it. There was a very, to me, blatant, you know, pro probably not intentional, probably just a very like cultural, this is how things play out observation kind of thing. But it had a very like, she's asking for this 
kind of theme to it. And I can't help myself. They're just right there. I have to pull her pigtails. And the pigtails start talking to him. Uh, So Paul's sitting behind Leslie with the long two braids behind her. And the pigtails started talking to him like, you should pull us. And he pulls one and gets in trouble. And then the other one, like, no, 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 you just didn't pull hard enough. They're right here. You should just pull them. Like, you have to. And he's like, well, I can't control myself. I just have to. And pulls the other one, and she screams even louder, and he gets his check mark on the discipline board. I did like how ultimately he doesn't pull her hair a third time. She just screams really loud and gets him in trouble, which is nice. But the whole story just had this very, like, she's asking for me to do it kind of theme for me, and I did not like that at all. I had a similar thought. The language of it felt inherently very sexual. Yes. Um, There was a lot around, like, he couldn't resist the urge. Right. Um, The urge was overtaking him. Like, there was nothing he can do to control it. And again, like, are we reading into this a lot? Is it too much? I don't know. But we are living in a post-Me Too Mm -hmm. era. And the way that we are thinking about these things has changed in a way that I think is very positive. And to the extent that Paul's behavior toward Leslie and her pigtails could mirror even in a small way the behavior that any child would have, you know, sort of with respect to anyone else's body, any part of their body, like that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I agree. So I agree with you that that freaked me out and I didn't like it. I also didn't like the one about the girl who just didn't like anyone. um, And was talking about how like she had reasons for disliking everybody in the class. I think her name was Kathy. And ultimately all of the reasons that she said she didn't like different members of the classroom or different people within her peer group, they all sort of were self-fulfilling prophecies. Like even her cat, she said she didn't like her cat because she thought her cat might run away. And because she said that she didn't take good care of the cat and the cat did run away. So then she sort of had evidence to inform her theory. Um, But Mm -hmm. just the whole thing felt very dark and negative. So that was my other least favorite. I will say that there were two that I really liked. The first was... Chapter 16, all about DJ, who's just like the happy kid. Um, oh, who yeah. Always happy. They talk about how he's spreading happiness throughout the classroom. Like, even the classroom itself, as an inanimate object, is happy because of DJ. Mm-hmm. And all of the kids are asking him, like, why are you so happy? Why are you smiling all the time? And DJ says, you don't need a reason to be happy. You just need a reason to be sad. And I thought yes, that was I actually have simple, that written down here. Such a simple, kind of beautiful message for kids, for mm-hmm. adults, for everyone that, like, you shouldn't really need a reason to be happy and, you know, you shouldn't feel like you have to ask someone why they're smiling because it's okay to just be happy. Right. Yes. I had written down that exact same quote. I was like, oh, well, that's really sweet. That's a nice gem of a, of a moment in the book for sure. The other one that I really liked was chapter eight about Myron. And this one I did kind of think was maybe a little bit of like a political statement on Lewis Mm -hmm. Sacker's part. It's the one where Myron is elected class president and he's told that his only job is to turn the lights on at the beginning of the day and then to turn them off at the end of the day. And he's kind of disappointed, Mm -hmm. which I could relate to because I would be really annoyed if I was a kid and like had worked so hard to be president and that's all that I had to do. And he's late to school one day because he is saving one of his classmates' dogs And when he gets there, he's been demoted from president because he was late and, like, couldn't 
be there to turn the lights on so some other kid like becomes the president and I just thought the absurdity of that of like (laughs) he's doing something very legitimate and heroic but he's going to be punished for it and somebody else gets to like rise to the office of the presidency is um, very fitting for certain political situations (laughs) that I won't get into right now but I do think that maybe Lewis Acker was making some sort of a commentary about politics and like the legitimacy or illegitimacy of certain offices. Right. And that was the best part at the end where he's like, he was the best president and no one will ever know was my favorite. Right. Like who's Um, really doing the work? (laughs) Yes. Also, it makes me think of in, I think it's chapter three with Joe who count, he always, if he's asked to count, he can get to the right number of things. Like there's five oranges, but when he says it out loud, it's wrong. He'll be like three, five, eight, nine, ten oh, there's five oranges. And they're like, no, 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 that's not how you do it. Count correctly. And then if he says one, two, three, four, there's 25 oranges. He can't get to the right amount. And there was a statement in there just about, no, you have to do it correctly to also get the right answer versus if a kid just has a different way of doing something but still gets to the right answer, isn't that just as good? Which I thought was a cute, very easy to absorb, like little lesson in there about like all kids probably feel like they're not doing things the right way, but could still contribute. I liked that one a lot too. But all the two that you just mentioned were definitely highlights for me as well. I used to get so mad in math class, like through my whole school career when you had to show your work and you could get the right answer and still be marked Mm -hmm. down because your work was wrong. And I know that they're teaching math in a very specific way now that sort of hammers that home even further. So I liked that statement. On the whole, right. I mean, yeah. we can't compare this experience for you to the one of you reading it when you were a kid because you said that you don't really have a clear memory of reading this book when you were little. But I'm curious, sort of stepping back and, and taking in our conversation and then your reading experience, how did this book measure up to maybe the expectations that you had for it? I think it was interesting because when I first saw the cover and had the recall of, oh, I definitely read that and I remember liking it. Like I remember having positive association with this book and then reading it as an adult, it definitely comparatively was way darker and a little creepier and a little bit more nightmarish than I expected. I still, you know, in talking to you, there's still so much, there's so much more to like talk about it around it than I thought. I think there's a lot more layers than I predicted as well. But overall, just a little bit scarier than I thought. Because thinking, looking at this cover, and I have the cover that I would have had as a kid, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, I remember that was such a fun book. And then reading it as an adult, I'm like, wait, that's kind of scary. (laughs) Which surprised me. I echo that. Listeners, please don't hate us. If we'd read this as kids or remembered it as kids, we'd probably have totally different viewpoints. Yeah, I think the nostalgia factor is probably pretty important with this one. but For sure, for uh, sure. Other than Sideways Stories, what have you been reading lately, Katie, that you would recommend to SSR listeners? Ooh, good question. Um, well, I'm in the same boat as probably most of the listeners who have seen anything about books in 2019, 2020. The maybe you should talk to somebody. To somebody, is it somebody or someone? I always forget. I wrote to. it down. To someone, maybe you should talk to someone by Lori Gottlieb, which was on a bunch of lists for 2019. And then it seemed around December, January, a lot of people started picking it up. Is an excellent read. I've heard it's also really good in audiobook. My husband just listened to it and really enjoyed it and like was like, you know, I'm really thinking that, you know, it just causes you to like have lots of deep thoughts, which is great. But 
given the climate that we're recording this in right now, hopefully not the climate that we're listening that we're listening to it in. Hopefully oh. everything's great and happy and sunny. Oh yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's a, when you said that, I was like, oh, you're right. This isn't going to air for a while. Maybe <laughs> we'll be on the other side of the tunnel by then. But I have been really enjoying. I just finished the third in Deborah Harkness's All Souls trilogy. The Discovery of Witches, which I read the first years ago, and it was good for me, not great. Uh, but then we traveled to London earlier this year, and I brought the second one with me, and it was just like the perfect book for the perfect time. And I just finished uh, the third one. You know, it's about witches in England, and it time travels a bit. And so it was like the perfect distraction, totally unrealistic and like otherworldly and an adventure easy read. So that was like a perfect distraction. And then I just moved on now to Outlander, which I've never read. So I'm like, this seems like a good chunk, 850 pages. I can really dive into it, escape. And maybe by the time I'm done, I can read something a little bit more realistic. I'll be prepared for that. Yeah, I'm having some trouble with contemporary fiction right now, too, Yeah, with everything going on. I, I think something a little bit more genre is working better. I just started Long Bright River two nights ago, and even oh, yeah. though it's, like, super dark and technically contemporary, it is this, like, police procedural thriller kind of thing, and it's totally helping. I was having a lot of trouble getting through books before, and... Um, Again, yeah. listeners, hopefully this isn't something that we're dealing with anymore. But Not if for whatever concerned. reason, yeah, if for whatever reason you're having trouble and feeling distracted reading, uh, what I've learned over the last couple of weeks is that sometimes a little genre goes a long way. Yes, it does. We all could use some comfort reading right now for sure. Yes. Well, I will include links to all of your recommendations as well as Sideways Stories from Wayside School in the show notes for this episode along with all of the awesome essays and think pieces I was quoting before. And I'm, of course, going to direct listeners to the Bookly Club. Listeners, I would absolutely recommend you check it out and check out all the cool things that Katie and her co-founders are doing over there. Katie, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and for bringing me into this awesome collaboration. I had a great time talking about this book with you, and I feel like it's really sort of clarified my feelings about it. (laughs) Good. Thank you so much, Allie. I really love chatting. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.